Let's stand and read scripture together. In Acts chapter 10, beginning with verse 34, the text reads, then Peter began to speak to them. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses that, to all that he did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Tomorrow, Christians will gather for worship and read this story. This text functions as what is called a post-epiphany reading. Adventist Christians know as much or as little about epiphany as secular Americans. Epiphany is a compound Greek word that means to shine upon or to make manifest or to appear. It is a Christian festival that transfers us back to a celebration older than Christmas. For Christians, Epiphany celebrates or conveys a deeper significance than Christ Christmas itself. One writer says, instead of simply being the anniversary of the birth of Christ, Epiphany testifies to the whole purpose of the incarnation, the manifestation of God in Jesus Christ. When we know little about something, we often bring fresh eyes to the topic. So depending on how you look at it, some might say that the Christian feast of Epiphany got downgraded. What used to be one long, unitive festival that went on for several weeks, dissolved or you could say elaborated into a series of commemorations. Epiphany now celebrates a number of events in Jesus' life that reveal to us how God, through that man, reconciled the world. In the Annunciation, in the Visitation, in his presentation at the temple, in the visit of the Magi, or his baptism at the Jordan, in all these events, we can say, what an epiphany, what a manifestation of God's work in Jesus. 
And nevertheless, the course of church history splintered this long distinctive feast into three seasons that now include Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. So we break up the Epiphany feast and we celebrate a baby shower and a birthday. Breaking up this feast causes us to pause again and to look with fresh eyes at Epiphany. And what becomes apparent is that not all Epiphanies are welcomed. The word Epiphany is not an unambiguous good. In other words, there are good Epiphanies and there are bad Epiphanies. A good epiphany signifies the dawn of a new spring day. A bad epiphany signifies the approach of an enemy army. In the apocryphal book of Maccabees, we read about the four generals of Alexander the Greek. It says, when his kingdom divided, from them came forth a sinful root, Antiochus Epiphanes son of King Antiochus, he had been a hostage in Rome. He began to reign in the 137th year of the kingdom of the Greeks. And here begins the long story of resistance of the Jewish people to the epiphany, the manifestation of an evil tyrant. So as we just preview the Christian celebration of this season, let's not forget that any manifestation can be an epiphany. And let's not forget that not all epiphanies are good. Our Jewish heritage, with norms of good and evil, awaited the end of Antiochus Epiphanes, but our postmodern heritage and our partisan homes invite the return of his warring culture. Think about it. You and I, re we employ rhetorical devices to secure behaviors of avoidance in a cheap attempt to broker peace with those we're uncomfortable with. We don't like to talk about good and bad as if it manifests some kind of absolute categories. Good and bad, they're relative. Events are bad or good relative to some goal. A farmer in a drought says, rain is good. But if rain comes and doesn't stop, that same farmer calls the flood bad, invoking the relative nature of good and evil, permeates our culture. Our postmodern and partisan worlds entitle everyone to their own bias. We simply accept difference. For our culture, all manifestations all epiphanies are equally valid. No one is in a position to judge which, which epiphany is good and which is bad. But this cheap attempt to broker peace actually invites a culture of a more vicious war. It avoids the hard work of finding common ground. We enjoy a surplus of rhetorical mechanisms that help us to avoid. Avoid talking politics with liberals. Just say, well, you know, I'm a Trump supporter. 
Avoid talking economic theory with Marxists. Just say, nobody questions that free markets are the most efficient way to grow the economy. Avoid challenging discussions on theory. Just say, I'm a doer, talk is cheap. Avoid discussing the president's choice to assassinate the Iranian general Qasem Soleimani. Just echo the talking point, he was a bad guy who killed Americans. Shut down any discussion on climate issues. Say everyone knows climate change is a hoax. Shut down any theological talk. Just say, we Baptists believe X, or I'm a Catholic and we believe Y, or two things you never discuss is politics and religion. If you can't say amen, say ouch. And whenever you fear that your unchallenged, pre-reflective hunches are threatened, by mounting evidence and sound reason, just protest that we need a fair and balanced discussion with both sides of the issues. You see, our culture voluntarily ghettoizes into polar communities. Our culture is the thumbs up icon generation. Everyone can claim me too and mean something different. Thumbs up for Black Lives Matter. Thumbs up for Blue Lives Matter. Thumbs up for me too. Thumbs up for Save the Wells. With a thumbs up, I can find instant approval from a virtual community. But whenever the only thing that grounds me to my opinions are my own interpretations of my experiences, my self-proclaimed identity, all buttressed by my network community that posts a thumbs up icon and signifies instant approval, then I live with the false impression that I have exhausted all that I need to do in order to find community. Virtual communities promote a kind of relational consumerism. We look for the community that fits us but it's precisely the relational consumer behavior that reveals our unfitness for the kingdom community that God has called us to. It is precisely the relational consumer behavior that prevents us from recognizing that not all epiphanies are good. Not all manifestations are to be celebrated. It's precisely the relational consumer behavior that allows me to concede to a, an epiphany, to a manifestation of a world in a constant state of war that masquerades as peace. A war where I battle for the most thumbs up icons and don't call it a battle. Our postmodern heritage and partisan homes celebrate and invoke the return of the warring Antiochus epiphany while our Jewish heritage, with its fixed norms of good and evil, celebrate the end of Antiochus' appearance. Peter was the ultimate member of the Thumbs Up Icon community. We empathize with Peter in this morning's scripture reading. Peter is confronted with a challenge to his deeply held conviction about identity. Peter wants to guard his group's separateness. It happened. Peter went to the home of an Italian military officer in Caesarea named Cornelius. Taught to think in terms of my group and your group, my beliefs and your beliefs, my identity and your identity, Peter is now directed by the Spirit of God to relocate to a place 
where he has to shatter his long fought for group identity. For Peter, these distinctions were clear, clear in embodiment, a brown Jewish Asiatic and a white Italian officer, clear in doctrine, one immersed in Torah, another in pagan philosophy, clear in dietary choices, one who did not eat unclean meats, another who ate whatever. In our text, both Peter and Cornelius have different visions but a common calling. Peter, after many episodes that highlight his learning disability, finally has the epiphany. Something unique was made manifest in Jesus. Luke gives room in his narrative for Peter to preach his final missionary sermon before he leaves the scene in Acts and passes the baton to Paul, the story's hero. Luke writes, then Peter began to speak to them, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Wow, who is this Peter? He sounds like an early advocate of comparative religion. What happened to the Peter that we knew? What happened to the Peter who on the Mount of Transfiguration wanted to start an Elijah, Moses, and Jesus club? What happened to the Peter who in Luke 12 wanted to know, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everyone? What happened to the Peter who took the group Loyalty so serious, he reminded Jesus, look, we have left our homes and followed you. What happened to Peter? Christians call it conversion. Peter learned that up until that moment, everything he had learned from Jesus amounted to nothing but repackaged religious bigotry. So it took the Spirit of God to send Peter to convert a Gentile military occupant in the land of Palestine. What Peter discovers is that his own conversion hinged upon his willingness to convert the other. So Christ gives Peter a vision of a Christian Eucharist he was to preside over at a pagan table. At first, Peter refused, but Jesus commands him, rise and eat. At this point, Peter recognizes that forbidden food and forbidden foes are not permanent identities. God desires our communal health more than the condition of our soon-to-be corpses. Our politics can and do change. Our ideas, beliefs, and doctrines can and do change. Our cultural communities can and do change. But what remains the same is our shared humanity. And because all humans are God's children, God shows no partiality. Christ came to manifest God's impartiality to God's human children. But God's impartiality as understood by Peter the preacher is not some kind of liberal political vision of blind lady justice. 
nor is it some general empty truism found in a comparative religion's description. God's impartiality as understood by Peter is discovered in the story of Jesus, a righteous man, unjustly convicted in a kangaroo court system and crucified. God's impartiality comes from this same Jesus who now will judge the living and the dead. God's impartiality comes from the peace that is offered by this victim judge, the one who brings radical and unbounded forgiveness. God raises Jesus from the dead, chooses him to judge those who killed him, and he offers them in his judgment forgiveness. Peter received that forgiveness. He denied Jesus during his trial. And if God does not take bribes, but is impartial in his judgment, then the forgiveness that God offers to Peter, Peter realized, God offers to everyone. Peter learns that you don't get real peace by forging and fortifying a community of instant approval. Real peace comes with forgiveness. And it is because Peter encountered his victim judge, Jesus, that he proclaims God's impartial ways. This judge returned and offered forgiveness to all who trust in him. But guess what? The epiphany in our passage is not about the manifestation of God in Jesus. The epiphany in this passage is about the manifestation of God's spirit among diverse human communities. Luke tells us about the first manifestation of the Spirit. It descended upon Jesus at his baptism. And Jesus comes from the overshadowing of God's Spirit, singing the melody of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Luke tells about a second manifestation of the Spirit. It descended upon Jewish believers on the day of Pentecost. And Peter comes from that overshadowing of God's Spirit singing the chorus of Joel in the last days. It will be God declares that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And now in our text, for a third time, Luke tells about the manifestation of the spirit that followed Peter's final sermon in the home of that Italian military officer. Cornelius comes from that overshadowing of God's spirit, and I'm certain he was singing. But for all we know, he could have sang the secular hymn of the famous Roman poet Horace, the Song of the Ages. Maybe having now experienced the work of God's Spirit among the Gentiles, Cornelius sang, my prayers were scant, my offerings few, 
while witless wisdom fooled my mind, but now I trim my sails anew and trace the course I left behind. For lo, the sire of heaven on high, by whose fierce bolts the clouds are riven, today through an unclouded sky his thundering steeds and car has driven. Now Peter knows that Cornelius can celebrate Christ's forgiveness because the Spirit of God is as far-reaching as the forgiveness of Christ goes. And Cornelius has received that Spirit. To talk about the Spirit of God is to talk about the excess of God's goodness. The Spirit denotes God's plentitude, God's abundant overflow. The same Spirit that descended on Jesus at his baptism the same spirit that descended upon Jewish disciples on the day of Pentecost, the same spirit descended upon Gentile believers in Cornelius' house. That same spirit is manifested once again today. And God offers forgiveness today for a world that is wandering away. God does not want us to be bound by our ugly pasts. Perhaps God's impartiality expresses itself not so much in judicial probity, but in God's readiness to bless all. That day at Cornelius' home, before the hearers broke out in a charismatic worship service, Peter closed his sermon saying of Christ, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Dieter Georgie says it this way. Our readiness for the day of the Lord requires first of all, the readiness for one another, particularly the readiness for the enemy, not in order to kill, but in order to embrace. What songs are we singing as evidence that we have been baptized with the Holy Spirit? What songs have the church penned to let the world know that we are part of that prophetic heritage that testifies about Jesus' forgiveness? What songs do we sing that remind us to be open to new understandings, new perspectives, and new visions about God's ways in the world? Whatever they are, let's sing them. And let's sing them with an exuberance that matches the excessive goodness of a God who reconciles his enemies. <laughs>